Due to the graphic nature of these crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of drug use, underage sex, and self-harm. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. 16-year-old Sarah Kolb stood in the corner and scowled over her drink. It was supposed to be a fun party where she and her friends could smoke weed and listen to insane clown posse together. Sarah was already high from the thick smoke filling the room, but she wasn't enjoying it. Because her worst enemy was just a few feet away from her, living it up like everyone else. Sarah had explicitly forbidden anyone from inviting Adrian Reynolds. She didn't tell anyone why Adrian was on her hit list, but it didn't matter. Sarah's word was law, at least normally. But there Adrian was, drinking and smiling. Sarah was furious. To her, it proved Adrian was out to take everything that mattered to her, her party house, her friends. Adrian was going to ruin everything. Sarah had to make her pay. So when Adrian walked upstairs from the basement, Sarah jumped her. She got right in the girl's face, screaming every curse and insult she could think of. Her friends egged her on, feeding the frenzy in her head. Finally, with a rush of pure adrenaline, Sarah pulled out her knife. She told Adrian she was going to kill her. It wasn't a threat. It was a promise. Hi, I'm Lainey Hobbs, and this is Crimes of Passion, a Spotify original from Parcast. In the legal definition, a crime of passion is a violent crime that occurs in the throes of extreme emotion, leaving no time to reflect on the consequences. But in this show, we explore how passionate relationships sometimes lead us to criminal activity. How does a husband and wife become killer and victim or killer and co-conspirator? If there's a thin line between love and hate, what manipulates our relationships into deadly results? You can find episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. This week, we'll follow the troubled upbringing of Adrienne Reynolds and her closest pals, Sarah Kolb and Harley Quinn. When these friendships turned sour, Adrienne found herself caught in the crosshairs of something dangerous. Next week, we'll discuss how the teenage angst quickly turned deadly. In the aftermath, police race to put together the shattered pieces of a very twisted picture. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. No one has a perfect childhood, but most have it easier than Adrienne Reynolds. Her biological mother, Carolyn Franco, was just 16 when Adrienne was born in 1988. At the time, the two lived with Carolyn's mother, Beverly, and her stepfather, Tony Reynolds, in El Dorado, Arkansas. 
Carolyn was eager to strike out on her own, but it was a lot harder to do with a baby. Tony and Beverly agreed to take care of Adrian until Carolyn was ready. What was supposed to be a temporary arrangement got complicated when Adrian's biological father entered the picture just two months after she was born. By then, Beverly and Tony loved Adrian like she was their own, so Carolyn signed over her parental rights to avoid a court battle she wasn't sure she could win. With that, life went on for Carolyn. She met a new guy and moved out, leaving Adrian with her new legal guardians. Life was good for Tony, Beverly, and Adrian for a while, but after just a few short years of marriage, Tony and Beverly started fighting. Things became tense at home, and in 1992, when Adrian was three years old, the couple split. They stayed friendly for Adrian's sake, but it was just the beginning of a cascade of disappointments for the young girl. No matter how much they loved her, the adults in Adrian's life couldn't provide her with a stable environment. In 1995, she was uprooted once again, this time moving with Beverly and Carolyn to Longview, Texas. Carolyn, now in her 20s, was finally ready to take Adrian back. Since moving away, she'd gotten married and had a second child. Things were looking up. Maybe Carolyn could finally offer six-year-old Adrian a stable home. Beverly and Tony hoped that was the case. They decided it would be better for Adrian to be with her mother, but looks can be deceiving. As the years passed, Carolyn's marriage started to unravel. Eventually, she and her husband divorced, and for the second time in her very young life, Adrian watched her home life disintegrate. To make matters worse, around this same time, Tony fell in with a bad crowd. He ended up in prison. Suddenly, the only father Adrian had ever known was gone. It was like Adrian was learning to walk on sand. With each step, the ground shifted beneath her, making it impossible to find balance. Without parental guidance, Adrian looked to the other adults around her for an example. Carolyn had a lot of friends, a rowdy group of 20-somethings who spent a lot of time at the house. But these people weren't exactly upstanding role models for a nine-year-old girl. Carolyn and her friends liked to party. Young Adrian was often surrounded by drinking and drugs. It was only a matter of time before she was encouraged to join in. She started with smoking weed. Before she reached her teens, she moved on to cocaine and even crystal meth. She had sex for the first time at 14. All of this wild behavior was Adrian's way of coping with her tumultuous emotions. She was plagued by feelings of inadequacy brought on by her unstable home life. Her parents all said they loved her, but did a poor job of showing it. Adrian needed something to escape her nagging fears of abandonment. Before we go into Adrian's psychology, please note, I am not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but we have done a lot of research for the show. In 2013, the Eurasian Journal of Educational Research published a study on problematic behavior in adolescence. It examined risk factors that might lead to things like drinking, drug use, and premature sexual relationships. These included low parental control, poor role models, and a perceived lack of support. 
In particular, the study found that teens in these situations can see their friends as more influential than their parents. These teens are far more likely to engage in problem behavior as a way of gaining acceptance from their peers. Since Adrian's parents weren't around, she needed to fit in somewhere else. She had to get love and acceptance from her friends because she wasn't going to get it at home. As she grew up, Adrian's issues became more and more entrenched. When she was in her early teens, Carolyn remarried. Adrian's new stepdad was named David Franco. He could have been a real father figure to her, but he wasn't. David and Carolyn both worked long hours, leaving Adrian more alone than ever. So she continued acting out, only now she was skipping school too. It wasn't that class was hard, Adrian was plenty smart, she just didn't see the point. School had been a good place to make friends, but by eighth grade, Adrian felt it had served its purpose. She already had friends and they didn't need to go to class to hang out. Adrian was ready to drop out entirely. Her mom tried all sorts of bribes and punishments, but nothing she could do would make Adrian care about her education. As a compromise, Adrian agreed to try homeschool. But this plan immediately hit a snag. Homeschooling was far more expensive than Carolyn thought. There was an enrollment fee of $500 that Carolyn just couldn't pay right away. Adrian would have loved to sit at home doing nothing while her mother tried to find a way to raise enough money, but Carolyn wouldn't have it. She started bringing Adrian to work with her at a hot dog stand. Again, what was supposed to be a temporary arrangement went on longer than expected. Before anyone knew it, Adrian had missed her entire freshman year of high school. No one seemed worried about it, least of all Adrian. Working alongside her mom, she saw more of Carolyn than she had in years. Plus, she had plenty of free time to keep seeing her friends on the side. But the arrangement came to a screeching halt in 2003. That year, 15-year-old Adrian accused her stepfather, David Franco, of sexual abuse. We don't know much about the events that led to these accusations, but once Adrian formally filed the abuse claim, the floodgates were opened. The accusation brought an investigation into Adrian's home life. For once, adults seemed to understand what she'd been going through. They were willing to listen. It was around this time, possibly as part of the investigation, that Adrian finally spoke with a psychologist. She told the doctor that she'd attempted suicide 20 to 30 times and had recently turned to self-harm to cope with her situation. It must have been validating for the teenager to finally air out her frustrations with someone who was interested in her story. But she still craved support from her mother, and sadly, she didn't get it. In an act of ultimate betrayal, Carolyn refused to believe her daughter's claim. She insisted Adrian was lying. She even went so far as to claim that Adrian always lied when things didn't go her way. Once again, Adrian was left to navigate an impossible situation all on her own. But the investigators believed Adrian where Carolyn wouldn't. And as the case was brought to trial, she also found support from the county prosecutor. David was indicted by a grand jury and charged with sexual assault and indecency with a child. 
This should have been a huge victory for Adrian, but as always, reality proved more complicated. David's conviction made Adrian's home life unstable once again. By fall of 2003, she was on the verge of ending up in foster care. Carolyn had other ideas. Without discussing it with Adrian, she tracked down Tony on the internet, or at least that's her version of the story. Tony claimed he reached out earlier when Adrian started having issues with school. Whatever the truth is, the two connected and decided it would be better for Adrian to live with him in Illinois. Adrian wasn't thrilled with the idea. Despite the chaos at home, she had a group of friends that she didn't want to leave behind. The move might have felt like a punishment for daring to speak up about the abuse, but her only other option was foster care. Ultimately, she chose to move to Illinois. Adrian likely had mixed feelings about reuniting with Tony. On the one hand, he was the closest thing to a real father that she'd ever had, but on the other hand, there were issues with his wife, Joe. Like Carolyn, Joe didn't believe Adrian's story about the sexual abuse. She saw Adrian as a troublemaker who would disrupt the tidy family she and Tony had. Joe never said any of this out loud, but by that point, Adrian had gotten good at sensing when she wasn't wanted. It was the feeling she'd been trying to escape her entire life. To make matters worse, Tony worked as a truck driver and was away from home for long stretches, which meant Adrian was left with Joe, who could barely hide her resentment. When Tony was home, it seemed like the only thing he cared about was whether she had done her homework and chores. He and Joe were constantly breathing down her neck, watching her every move. All the scrutiny didn't make Adrian feel cared for. Instead, she felt suffocated. So they fought a lot. At school, things weren't much better. Being the new kid and starting so late in the year meant Adrian had a hard time making new friends. The other kids teased her for her thick Southern accent, making her feel even more isolated and lost. She tried her best to make it work, but eventually she just couldn't stand it anymore. At the end of the school year, she told Tony that she wanted to go back home. Carolyn was willing to take her, if Adrian dropped the charges against her stepdad. The prosecutor tried to convince Adrian to stay strong, but by then, she was willing to do or say anything for another chance with her mom. So when she returned to Texas, she wrote a letter to the judge recanting her story. This turned out to be a huge mistake. Nothing had changed between mother and daughter and Adrian immediately found herself right back where she'd started. By October of 2004, Carolyn was threatening to send Adrian away again. Out of desperation, Adrian started running away to her friends' houses. She was turned away everywhere she went. Soon, the feeling of being unwanted twisted into a deep depression. By the time Tony reached out to see how things were going, Adrian was at the end of her rope. He offered her a plane ticket. This time, she had a choice. But even this decision felt like being trapped between a rock and a hard place. In the end, Adrian likely saw Tony 
as the one chance she had at something resembling a normal life. She accepted Tony's offer and went back to him. As Adrian boarded the plane, all she could do was hope that for once, she'd made the right decision. Coming up, things go from bad to worse for Adrian. I'm Sarah Turney, host of Disappearances, a Spotify original from Parcast. In 2020, I used social media to help bring justice to my sister Alyssa's nearly two decades long disappearance. Now I'm exploring the many reasons people disappear and finding that the truth may be even harder to locate than the person. Who forced a famed explorer to lose his way? What did a missing Hollywood starlet leave behind? And how could the heiress to a Chicago candy fortune just vanish? Every Thursday on Disappearances, join me for a deeper look into history's most gripping missing persons cases. Tracking timelines, analyzing clues, and piecing together as many answers as possible to find the actual truth. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast Disappearances. Listen free only on Spotify. Now, back to the story. By November of 2004, 16-year-old Adrienne Reynolds was back in East Moline, Illinois, and the second time around, things got off to a promising start. Instead of re-enrolling Adrienne in public school, Tony and Joe Reynolds signed her up for a GED program through a local community college. The alternative education site called Blackhawk catered to people who had trouble succeeding in traditional school settings. It was about the only type of school Adrian would tolerate. All coursework was to be completed on site, so there was no homework to blow off. And because most of their students worked at least part-time, the school day ended at noon. Things were going better than Adrian had imagined. She got a job and settled into a routine. Finally, it seemed like the chaos was behind her. But something was still missing. A group of friends. Looking around her new school, it seemed like all she had to do was pick the right click. One group in particular piqued her interest. They all gathered in the parking lot, rap blaring from their car speakers. Their clothes were dark and baggy, and most had more than one visible piercing or tattoo. They were different from the people Adrian normally ran with. But it wasn't the group as a whole that caught her eye. At the center of the hubbub was a girl about Adrian's age. Her shoulder-length hair had obviously been cut and bleached at home. Every inch of her oversized clothes were torn or graffitied. Her entire vibe screamed, I don't care what you think. Adrian was transfixed. This was the girl that she wanted to meet, 16-year-old Sarah Kolb. Sarah had already completed one year at Blackhawk when Adrian arrived. By that time, her intense, unpredictable temper had already turned heads. Basically, everyone knew Sarah was not someone to mess with. A reputation like that had secured her spot as leader of her pack. Sarah ran with the local Juggalos, a term for fans of the band Insane Clown Posse. 
ICP is a rap duo at the forefront of the horrorcore subgenre, making music preoccupied with violence and death. ICP's lyrics are angsty and angry, lashing out against the status quo. Their albums feature tracks like F the World and I Stab People. In many ways, Sarah was perfectly suited to the juggalo lifestyle. She was angsty, angry, and liked doing drugs. And there were a lot of people with similar interests in the small town of East Moline. Sarah and her friends spent most nights numbing themselves with drugs and alcohol at the local party house. At other times, they caused mayhem in public parks. Police departments in the area were used to getting calls about kids in baggy clothes and face paint, lighting fires and trash cans. The culture and music of the insane clown posse provided a perfect outlet for the rage flickering deep inside Sarah's heart. She had a list of grievances she nursed in the pages of her journal. She targeted everything from society at large to the individual people in her life. It seemed like the whole world only existed to annoy and enrage her. Sarah wrote line after line about the violent fantasies that swirled in her mind, all the terrible things she wanted to do to her so-called enemies. The moment anyone crossed her, they were on her hit list. At the heart of all this teenage angst, Sarah faced some intense struggles with her mental health. Despite the tough front she put on in public, she was deeply insecure. She hung her entire sense of self-worth on the people around her, especially her friends and romantic partners. In October of 2004, a month before she met Adrian, her most recent relationship came to an end. To make matters worse, her ex-girlfriend had already moved on. Sarah was left feeling rejected and replaced, probably her two biggest fears. She wrote in her journal about her devastating heartbreak, feeling unloved and unlovable. She fell into a deep depression. Sarah sank pretty low when she lost the attention she craved. This made her hypersensitive to any perceived threat to her social connections. If she thought someone might challenge her status in the friend group, she wouldn't hesitate to excommunicate them. It was as if her rage and her insecurity were intertwined, each one feeding off the other. She kept a tight leash on anyone who cared for her, especially her best friend, 17-year-old Harley Quinn. Harley and Sarah hadn't known each other for long, but they became close quickly. They bonded the way teenagers often do, over being outsiders and feeling misunderstood. At least, that's what Sarah let Harley believe. The truth was, all Harley was to Sarah was someone she could control. Harley was head over heels from their first meeting, and Sarah knew it. It was probably the only thing Sarah actually liked about Harley. She was a deep well of adoration for Sarah to draw on whenever her ego needed the boost. According to psychologist Dr. Jennifer Crocker, people with low self-esteem and high rejection sensitivity like Sarah pursue relationships as a way to prove things to themselves. For Sarah, being liked meant everything, and she needed a friend who could constantly serve as a reminder of her value. Harley was the perfect target for Sarah. She also struggled with her self-esteem and was desperate to be liked. 
she was willing to withstand all kinds of unkindness from Sarah to maintain their friendship. And despite Sarah's mistreatment, Harley still cherished their connection. Sarah was the best friend she'd ever had and the only one who truly understood her. She poured her heart out to Sarah, sharing her secrets and deepest feelings. Sarah accepted it all under the guise of friendship, but behind the scenes, she hoarded the secrets like ammunition. Sarah quickly discovered that with the right finesse, she could convince Harley to do practically anything. When they met, Harley was attending an alternative school at Moline High, but Sarah persuaded her to transfer to Blackhawk. It isn't clear why she even suggested it. If anything, Sarah seemed annoyed to see Harley so often. She wrote in her journal that she would drop out of school if they ended up in the same class, but Harley never suspected a thing. She followed Sarah around like a puppy. The two hung out after school at the local party house, listening to ICP and doing drugs. Substance abuse was perhaps the only activity that Harley took more interest in than Sarah. She smoked, snorted, or swallowed pretty much any drug offered to her. Harley fit in easily with the rest of the ICP fans. She even had the punk look and attitude to match. But there was no question, Sarah was top dog. She ran the Juggalos at Black Hawk College as a refuge for social rejects. In a way, it was a welcoming community, a place where people who felt misunderstood by the world. That was the thing Adria noticed when she spotted Sarah her first day at Blackhawk. After feeling alone for her entire life, Adrian wondered if maybe this was the friend group that was right for her. She decided to play it bold and made the first move, leaving a short note and her number in Sarah's journal. It certainly made an impression. Sarah was still recovering from her recent breakup, and fresh blood was just what she needed. Someone new to pin all her hopes on. Not just any new girl, the new girl. Still, Sarah didn't seize the opportunity right away. She didn't want to seem desperate. Within a week, she was talking about Adrian to her friends. At a Juggalo bonfire, she told someone she was thinking about getting Adrian's name tattooed on her arm. But she didn't share any of this with Adrian. In fact, she didn't say anything at all, which left Adrian confused and flustered. She heard through the grapevine that Sarah thought she was cute and wanted to hook up. Yet when they passed each other in the halls, it was like Adrian didn't exist. Just when Adrian was about to give up, Sarah wrote her back. She apologized for not talking to her sooner, claiming she was just shy. Adrian must have been thrilled with the breakthrough. Though she had initially been looking just to make friends, she was open to the idea of something more. The two continued writing each other notes back and forth, and Sarah continued sending mixed signals. She asked Adrian to come hang out at a friend's apartment, the other people in attendance were couples, and Adrian wasn't sure if it was supposed to be a date. Sarah only made things worse. She didn't make a move, leaving Adrian more confused than ever. The two of them passed notes to each other, gradually growing more flirtatious. But in real life, neither one ever pulled the trigger to make things official. 
They were more than acquaintances, but less than friends. Yet at the same time, they seemed on the verge of being something more. While their situation was in limbo, Sarah slowly introduced Adrian to her circle of friends. Adrian and Harley hit it off pretty quickly and even hung out without Sarah from time to time. But Adrian wasn't a juggalo. For one thing, she was a girly girl. Her favorite color was pink. She listened to country music and loved Kelly Clarkson. Adrian had gotten into her fair share of trouble over her short 16 years, but those days were behind her. She didn't have that angsty mentality that Sarah had, at least not anymore. But she was willing to do anything to fit in with Sarah and her crew. She tried her best to become a juggalette, nodding along when ICP came through the speakers. At first, Sarah thought the show of interest was flattering. Maybe Adrian was desperately trying to impress her. The thought was tempting, the new girl wrapped around her finger. But Sarah could tell when people weren't being real with her, and Adrian was setting off alarm bells. Pretty soon, Sarah started to feel like the performance wasn't entirely for her benefit. A terrible thought popped into Sarah's head. Maybe Adrian was more interested in her friends than her. The idea bloomed and mutated, filling Sarah's mind with dark anxieties. Adrian was pushing her out. She was out to steal Sarah's position as head of the group. The more she thought about it, the more convinced she became. Sarah wouldn't allow anyone to come between her and her friends. If Adrian thought she could swoop in and take everything from her, she had another thing coming. She needed to figure out once and for all whether Adrian was friend or foe. So Sarah came up with a twisted, devious plan to do just that. Coming up, Adrian finds herself in the middle of a dangerous game. Now, back to the story. By December 2004, 16-year-old Adrian Reynolds had finally settled into a new friend group. The Juggalos weren't exactly her style, but they made her feel welcome. Plus, Adrian had a crush on Sarah Kolb, the 16-year-old head of the crew. As far as Adrian could tell, things were going well. Sarah had been a bit hard to read, but finally things were looking up. That month, Sarah invited Adrian to a party. In Adrian's mind, it seemed like a good sign. But Sarah had other ideas. Jealousy had already poisoned her mind, making her suspicious of everything Adrian did. She couldn't tell if Adrian really wanted to be with her or just wanted to usurp her role as the head of the friend group. So the party wasn't actually the next step in their relationship. It was a test. Before Sarah brought Adrian any further into her life, she needed to know what kind of girl she really was, if she was really loyal. The event was at a house in the next town over, rented by a handful of Sarah's juggalo friends. Partygoers swapped everything from weed to ecstasy to cocaine. And there was always free-flowing booze. When Adrian arrived with Sarah and 17-year-old Harley Quinn, the party was in full force. 
Adrian might have recognized a few faces from school, but most of the people were strangers to her. Sarah shouted an introduction to the room before she and Harley headed to the attic, the designated area for getting high. Adrian wasn't interested, so she stayed downstairs. Sarah counted on that. She needed time to set up her test, the true purpose of the entire evening. Once Sarah was sure Adrian hadn't followed her to the attic, she put her plan into action. Sarah told a couple of the guys that Adrian was looking to get laid. Sarah and Adrian weren't in an official relationship, but in Sarah's mind, Adrian already belonged to her. And this was the best way to test her loyalty. If Adrian was willing to cheat on her with a boy, then she couldn't be trusted. But none of the boys knew about the scheme. As far as they knew, Adrian was single. As the night wore on, Sarah encouraged people to approach Adrian, though she didn't really have to try. Adrian was new, cute, and had a Southern accent, all of which seemed to fascinate many at the party. And for her part, Adrian was loving the attention. She was excited to impress her crush's friends. She probably thought that Sarah would be happy to see she was such a hit. But in reality, Sarah was furious. As the night wore on, she became sure that Adrian was out to usurp her. At some point in the night, the loud music and the smoky air inside the house finally got to Adrian. Her head started pounding and she decided to lie down in one of the bedrooms in the basement. About an hour went by after that. The entire party was in the living room, including Sarah. Almost everyone had heard Adrian was looking to hook up and this seemed like the perfect moment for someone to shoot their shot. So, one guy decided to be bold and go down to the basement. As he descended the stairs, everyone else continued drinking, laughing and knowing full well what was going to happen. Adrian was perhaps the only person who hadn't heard the rumor. She had no reason to think she was being set up for some secret test, so when some random guy came knocking on the bedroom door, she took it in a totally different way. She may have thought that having sex with someone was just another way to fit in. People had been hooking up all night, so sex clearly wasn't a big deal. Plus, Adrian wasn't really dating Sarah, at least not yet. Whatever her reason, Adrian did sleep with the boy, failing Sarah's test. Afterward, she returned to the living room as if nothing unusual had happened. She told Sarah and Harley that her curfew was almost up and it was time to leave. None of the girls talked about what had happened on the way home, but behind the wheel, Sarah stewed. In her mind, Adrian had ruined everything. All her hopes and dreams evaporated, replaced by betrayal and rejection. Never mind that Adrian had no idea about any of it. The next day at school, Sarah could barely speak to Adrian. All she said was that she was upset and didn't want to talk about it. But Adrian was confused and couldn't let it go. She begged Sarah to forgive her for whatever she did, claiming it wouldn't happen again. Adrian pleaded with Harley to get Sarah to listen to her and accept her apology. The worst thing in the world to Adrian was rejection. 
It was torture for her to know someone out there didn't like her, especially when she didn't understand why. According to Dr. Holly Daniels, a clinical psychologist in Los Angeles, this kind of behavior aligns with an anxious attachment style. Developed in childhood, our attachment styles dictate our behavior in relationships. A person with anxious attachments defines themselves by their relationships, attaching their entire self-worth to the success or failure of that bond. Adrian fits right into this mold. Her upbringing was marked by uncertainty and a rotating door of adults who never seemed to stick around. She likely developed an anxious attachment to her relationships out of the desperate need for someone to rely on. So when Sarah gave her the cold shoulder, Adrian was willing to do anything to keep her close. But Sarah was already on the warpath. She told everyone in the friend group what happened the night before, labeling Adrian a slut. It didn't seem to matter that sexual promiscuity was common at those parties. If Sarah decided someone had behaved badly, her word was law. Most of the Juggalo crew got the message. Adrian wasn't allowed to hang out with them anymore. But Sarah didn't just want to give Adrian the cold shoulder. She wanted to make her pay. After school that day, Sarah was back at the party house with Harley and two other friends. Suddenly struck with inspiration, Sarah told one of them to call Adrian's cell phone. They passed the phone around, yelling every insult and threat they could think of. As Adrian cried and begged for forgiveness, they all laughed, Sarah loudest of all. But not everyone felt good about icing out Adrian. One defector was a boy we'll call Henry. He lived at the party house and was one of the many who Sarah tried to trick into having sex with Adrian. To him, Sarah was nothing more than a hypocrite. Plus, he had a bit of a crush on Adrian, though he knew better than to tell Sarah about it. Henry knew he had to be discreet if he wanted to make a move on Adrian. One day, he invited her back over to the party house to hang out, just the two of them. Adrian agreed, probably relieved to know that someone was still being kind to her. But while they were down in his basement bedroom, a couple more showed up, including Sarah and Harley. Word spread that Adrian was with Henry. At first, Sarah didn't seem to react. She just went up to the attic to smoke. Henry heard people upstairs, so he went to investigate. He found a crowd in the attic. Sarah and Harley were already high. Sarah asked if Henry had invited Adrian to his room. If Henry was afraid to admit he disobeyed his order, he didn't show it. But rather than fly off the handle at him, Sarah laughed, knowing Adrian would have to leave the basement eventually. She and Harley went to wait in the living room. Henry returned with the bad news. Adrian wasn't afraid to face Sarah exactly, but it did make her nervous. She still had no idea why Sarah was even mad at her. Adrian waited as long as she could, but eventually she knew she had to leave. Plus, she had to use the bathroom. Rushing up the stairs, she moved as quickly as she could with Henry behind her like a bodyguard. She disappeared into the bathroom before anyone caught her, but the getaway wouldn't be clean. 
In her hurry, she slipped on her way out, falling to the floor in front of everyone. The small crowd, Sarah among them, immediately burst into laughter. Feeling overwhelmed and attacked, Adrian screamed at them all to shut up. That seemed to snap Sarah out of her good mood. Her smile turned into a scowl. She darted across the room and got right in Adrian's face. Sensing violence in the air, the laughter stopped. Suddenly, a chant broke out. Fight! 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 Sarah cursed like a sailor, threatening to kill Adrian. Adrian stood her ground, keeping a cool head. After Sarah stopped shrieking, she finally asked why all of this was happening. She just wanted to know what had gone so wrong between them so quickly. But Sarah was in no mood to talk. If anything, Adrian's questions may have felt sarcastic, as if she refused to recognize the severity of the situation. There was no time for chit-chat. In one swift motion, Sarah pulled out a knife. A wave of tension rippled through the room. Seeing the blade, Henry finally stepped in to de-escalate the situation. He offered to take Adrian home. Sarah paused, sizing up the boy in front of her. Suddenly, her tone turned icy, eyes devoid of emotion. She slowly flipped the knife open and closed as she told Adrian not to mess with her. But when Henry started to walk Adrian out of the house, Sarah didn't stop them. But for Sarah, the conflict was far from over. This latest confrontation had flipped a switch inside of her. There was no room for forgiveness, no space for understanding. Adrian was the enemy, a lightning rod for all of her pent-up rage. One way or another, Sarah was going to make Adrian suffer. Thanks again for tuning into Crimes of Passion. We will be back next week with part two of our story. As the teenage feud continues to build, a deadly result seems inevitable. For more information on the murder of Adrian Reynolds, we found Too Young to Kill by M. William Phelps extremely helpful to our research. You can find more episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time when true love meets true crime. Crimes of Passion is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Scott Stronick, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Bruce Kitovich. This episode of Crimes of Passion was written by Megan Hannum, with writing assistance by Georgia Hampton and Terrell Wells, fact-checking by Haley Milligan, and research by Mickey Taylor and Chelsea Wood. I'm Lainey Hobbs. Thank you.